Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, I'm entitling the message this morning, Daniel's Revelation to the King. Beginning in verse 19, it says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. And his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant in which was food for all under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven. Let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you have come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. There are several important words in the book of Daniel. Two of those key words we find over and over again in chapter after chapter. Dreams and visions. There are several important key verses in Daniel. And some scholars suggest that the key verse in all of the book is the one that we read the last time we were together in Daniel chapter 4. If you look at verse 17, it says, This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This warning isn't limited to King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 17, when it says that all the living may know, 
Remember the last time we were together, I said the reason why the text says so that the living will know is because the dead already know. The book of Daniel has been described as, quote, the greatest book in the Bible on the godless kingdoms and the kingdom of God. That's by William Scroge. The book includes Israel's fall, Gentile supremacy, but then Israel restored. And so in one small sense, this picture of the ascendancy of the Gentiles and the descent of the captivity of the children of Israel is mirrored, if you will, <laughs> in the humiliation of this king and the eventual restoration of the king. In this chapter, the king of Babylon falls, but he's going to be eventually restored. So remember what we've already learned in the chapter, the the king has issued a proclamation of praise, testifying to God's awesome power in verses 1 through 3. In the proclamation, the king revealed the particulars of his most disturbing dream in verses 4 through 18. The king saw a large tree spreading out, and then it was cut down between verses 4 and 12. Divine beings ordered the tree cut down and pronounces judgment and that's when the king calls for the wise men of Babylon to offer an interpretation and an explanation and they are unable in verse 7 and then Daniel is asked to solve the puzzle in verse 18. So in this section the king reveals Daniel's reaction to the dream in verse 19, Daniel's revelation and meaning and interpretation of the dream in verses 20 through 26, and we discover something, like I said, the dream is a warning. Nebuchadnezzar's pride is putting him at risk. Pride is going to lead to judgment. But then something remarkable happens. Daniel begs the king to repent. Look at verse 19. Daniel's reaction to the dream. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, meaning Bel is my example or my ruler, was astonished for a time. The old King James reads, he was astonished for an hour and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. How does Daniel react to the king's dream. Look what the text says. He is astonished. It's an Aramaic expression which means blown away. 
It means troubled. The implication is a, is a kind of a paralysis. This is the kind of astonishment that takes place when you hear something or something's revealed to you and you realize that your whole life is going to be different as a result of hearing it. Some of you have had that experience. You've heard a, a, a wife or a husband say, I'm leaving you. And you feel like your bottom has dropped out. Uh, you hear about the death of your mother or your father or your brother or your sister, someone that you love and you care about. There's something, there's a paralysis that overtakes you. There's a numbness that overwhelms you. And then there's an awkward silence, it says, for a time. It isn't a literal time in the sense that there he was for one hour with his mouth open and his eyes wide open. We don't know exactly the time, but here's what we do know. There is this awkward silence. The king has revealed what the king has revealed, and Daniel is astonished, and it is the king's word that is going to interrupt the awkward silence. Daniel isn't astonished. Because he doesn't understand the dream or because the dream is unintelligible, Daniel is reluctant to reveal God's judgment to the king. He's reluctant to do it. And that should cause each and every one of you to ask the text this question. Why is that? Why, why is Daniel so reluctant to make the pronouncement clearly this king has already demonstrated a volatile temper. We learned that from chapter 1 where he said, unless you tell me what I need to know, everybody's going to die. And in chapter 3, remember he said, unless you bow down to the image I've made, well, pretty much you're going to die. When you're dealing with a person who the way that this person solves all problems and resolves all conflict is, look, if you don't do exactly what I say, you're going to die you can imagine how much strain that puts on the relationship. Is he afraid of the king? I suspect there might be an element. We don't have to go beyond the biblical record of this king. He has killed the king of Judah Judah's sons gouged out their eyes. He's destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. He has killed literally tens of thousands of Jews. Daniel has a reputation for knowing the truth and telling the truth. And yet Daniel is a man who wants to speak the truth in love. So again, just for a moment, think about what's happening in the text. The silence is thundering. The king's inward terror is growing. What is Daniel going to say? Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or, the, or its interpretation trouble you. Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. And look, look what it says. It says, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you. And its interpretation concerned your enemies. This should shock you. It should surprise you. Daniel has a concern for this king. And the 
the, the concern seems genuine. He is deeply grieved. And again, you should say, how is this possible? How is it possible that Daniel could have even the remotest sense of respect or, or fondness or affection or love for this king? This king is responsible for so much that has gone wrong in the life of Judah and in the life of Daniel and in the life of his friends. If anyone had a right to celebrate God's judgment on this wicked king, it was Daniel. Daniel could have said, finally, you're getting what you deserve. If anyone ever deserved judgment, it's this guy. Would it be wrong to read into the text genuine affection for this king? Would it be an exaggeration to say that Daniel literally, not metaphorically or figuratively, forgave this king? That somehow he had taken the journey from bitterness to forgiveness. How is this even possible? Or is this Daniel's kind way of preparing the king to hear the truth? How is it possible to genuinely care for someone who has caused so much harm in your life? And then all of a sudden you begin to understand something. That maybe there's something in this text that concerns me or that concerns you. Because, because of Daniel's genuine affection and his deep commitment to do what's right, he has the opportunity to speak into this king's life what no other human being being in the kingdom is either willing or able to do. Remember in verses 6 and 7, none of his wise counselors, none of the people closest to him, nobody knew how to respond to the king concerning this dream. But because Daniel, because Daniel has made this journey, God is going to use him in the most amazing way. And so we see Daniel's revelation of the dream. Look how it continues. Verse 20. The tree that you saw which grew and became strong. Whose height reached to the heavens. And which could be seen by all the earth. Whose leaves were lovely. And its fruit abundant. And which was food for all. Under which, is, which the beasts of the field dwelt. And in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you. King. You. Who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominions to the ends of the earth. Daniel repeats the content of the dream which the king had given to him earlier in the chapter. Remember we've already discovered in the ancient Near East kings were often depicted as life-giving trees. In other words, their rule, their their. Rain, if you will, provided shade and rest and truth. It was the ancient world king's responsibility to provide protection and security. Trees protected and sustained life. But if the king acted wickedly, the tree of life became a tree of death. And if the tree dies, 
It can't provide shade. It can't provide true uh, fruit. It can't pr- make a provision. And so you can imagine how many people were dependent on this king. Just like people in our culture and society. Tragically, sometimes they are dependent on the government. Imagine you're living in a world where more than half of the population is dependent on the government for the most basic things like food, clothing, and shelter. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom had grown, had enriched itself, was entirely impressive. And in verse 23 it says, And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, This is the supernatural being that we talked about before coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree, not of the watcher or the holy one. Daniel literally connects it to El Elyon, the God most high. This is the interpretation, O king. This is the decree of the most high. Daniel is basically repeating and saying, the judgment has come from God himself, which has come upon my Lord, the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you After you come to know that heaven rules. So Daniel makes sure that the king understands. Number one, the supernatural beings that spoke to you in your dream. They came to you under the authority of the most high God. Verse 24. The source of the judgment is the God who revealed secrets in chapter 2, who delivered the children of Israel from the fiery furnace in chapter 3. The judgment is pronounced through angelic beings in verse 24. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be removed as king of his own kingdom. He would no longer live in a lavish palace. He's going to dwell in the open fields among the animals in the open air. There's not a whole lot of information that's given, but Daniel reveals to him somehow the circumstances that you find yourself in, the home that you find yourself in, the circumstances that you find yourself in, the provision that you used to have, the glory and the honor that used to be yours. It's no longer going to be yours. Not only is he going to dwell with the animals, he himself is going to begin to think like an animal and act like an animal. And we're back to what I said earlier. When human beings seek to be the God of their own life, they become something less than human. 
They don't become something more than human. They become something less than human. Scholars have suggested the king is going to suffer from a condition known as lycanthropy or boanthropy. There's another anthropy called zoanthropy. The, the idea is that there's some sort of malevolent circumstance which causes the individual to think like an animal and act like an animal. He says seven periods will pass over you. The judgment's going to last seven years. Imagine you're sentenced to prison for seven years. You have to leave your home. You have to leave your job. You have to leave your circumstances. Not only is this a significant amount of time, but it represents this loss of productivity. Your whole world is turned on its end. And note that word times because it's going to be used again in chapter 7 of the book of Daniel in verse 25. Because at that point, it's going to again be a reference to years. But Daniel says... King, I want to draw your attention to something. The supernatural being gave you command to, or were given the command to leave the stump, leave the roots, leave the roots and the stump of the tree. Your kingdom shall be assured to you. Look what it says in verse 26. After you come to know that heaven Rules, verse 26. Here, heaven is synonymous with the king of heaven. When he's speaking of heaven here, he's speaking about the king who occupies the throne of heaven. God has two thrones. One is in highest heaven. The other is in the lowest heart. Isn't that good news? God doesn't just simply dwell on high. The Bible says in John 1.1 that Jesus comes to the earth and he pitches his tent among us. That Jesus is going to save us, that Jesus is going to redeem us, that Jesus is going to make our heart his home, our heart his throne. The stump and the band in verse 15 and verse 23 is the guarantee that God is going to allow the king's kingdom to remain intact. There is going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. There is going to be hope. And that should cause you to pause for a moment in the text as well. Because as Nebuchadnezzar is hearing these words, he's thinking, you mean there's hope? You're, you're talking about judgment, but even in the midst of judgment, you, you mean there's hope. You mean grace can precede judgment. Mercy can come before judgment. You mean that there might be, there could be hope. <laughs> this last week, I went into Jack Phillips at Masterpiece Bakery. To my surprise, there on the table on the guest book was a little uh, tablet. And it said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who have hope 
and those who need hope. And underneath it was written my name, Gino Geraci. And I went, <laughs> there really are two kinds of people in the world. I know you want me to say Italian people and people who wish they were. That's, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who have hope and those who need hope. And that's exactly who I'm talking to. You fall into one of those two categories. You have it or you need it. The king's pride has placed his mind at risk. His vanity is going to be the gateway to insanity. His pride is a huge problem. But there's a hope. The kingdom could last beyond his, his judgment. Look what it says, quote, after you know or until you know that heaven rules. This is so full of hope because the same thing happens, remember, to Peter in the New Testament when, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you, and you hear me say this often when I use this illustration, and you said no, right? Satan's asked for you, and you said no, right? You said no, leave him alone, don't bother him, don't, don't deal with him. He belongs to me. Don't let him go through heartache or hardship or suffering or pain. But rather, he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that you will comfort and restore your brothers. In other words, there's hope for Peter. There's hope for Nebuchadnezzar, and there's hope for Peter, and there's hope even if you've been warned, even if you've been told, I need you to look in your heart. I need you to see if there's a problem or an issue. Daniel bluntly reveals the purpose of the judgment until you know that heaven rules. Again, my friend Ron Rhodes writes, quote, for years Nebuchadnezzar had been full of pride, acting like a god before the subjects of his kingdom. He apparently thought of himself as divine. Now Nebuchadnezzar must be shown the truth. The cutting down of the tree represents the breaking down of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, unquote. The severe humiliation is supposed to teach him that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Now you might be thinking, what, what are you saying, Gino? Are you suggesting that mental illness is a consequence of pride? No, I'm not saying that at all. Are you saying that every bad thing or every punishment that may come upon me is a result of some wrongdoing on my part? I don't have enough information to make that kind of judgment. It would be foolish and wrong of me to suggest that there's a direct correlation between everything bad that we do and everything bad that happens to us. But sometimes we do things, don't we? And bad things really do happen. So what do we do? How do we think about this? 
I think what we have to do and how we have to think about it is, again, remember what the Bible says. That he hasn't dealt with us according to our sin. He hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquity. God has been full of grace and mercy. He has been gracious and kind and patient and gracious and kind and patient. But if there's pride or if there's bitterness... And if we remain in that pride, if we remain in that bitterness, we become good candidates for judgment. In Psalm 107, verse 40, the Lord declares his judgment on self-exalted rulers. He says, quote, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes, unquote. The psalmist says, it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another in Psalm 75, verse 7. The Lord declares, quote, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me, unquote, in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 5. God does what God does. He gives to whomever he gives. He takes away from whomever he takes away. The God who easily gives can just as easily take it all away. But if this text means anything else, it must mean this as well. And then he gives it all back again. The Lord giveth, yes. The Lord taketh away, yes. And the Lord giveth back, yes. But what do we do if the person is convinced there is no hope? What do we do with those people in our lives who think, you don't understand, it's hopeless? This person is so bitter or this person is so proud. This person will never change. They'll never be different. They'll never change. They'll never be different. And what's worse is the person who says, I'll never change. I'll never be different. Remind them of God's promise in Psalm 71 verse 20. Look what it says. Psalm 71 20. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. This is one of those ones you should make a check next to. It says, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you'll restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you'll bring me up. The psalmist says, though you have made me see troubles, hey, there's been difficulty, there's been troubles, there's been setbacks, many and bitter, you'll restore my life again. From the depths of the earth. The apostle Paul prayed this in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those who believe. Paul prayed for the Ephesians. He says, I want the eyes of your heart 
to open up so that you can see what God has done for you in Christ, what belongs to you, and what is his incomparable power to make it take place. You know what this means? And what Daniel's example shows us, never deprive someone of hope. It may be all that they have. Hope may be the only thing that they're holding on to for their livelihood, for their job, for their marriage, for their circumstances, for their health, whatever it is that's going on. They're holding on to hope because they know that their life can't remain in this dark place forever. I'll never forget what Muhammad Ali said. He said, if they can make penicillin out of moldy bread, they can sure make something out of you. I never forgot that. If they, can take, if they can make penicillin out of moldy bread, then whatever disgusting thing that marks your life, God can take it and redeem it. And look at Daniel's recommendation to the king in verse 27. He says, therefore, O king, pause again. And think about what's going on in the text. Daniel takes off the prophetic mantle. He takes off his prophet's hat. And now he's going to put on his preacher's hat. Therefore, in light of all of this, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. And your iniquities... By showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there might be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel prophesies. Then preaches. Then pleads with the king. To change his ways. Make a clean break with sin. It's not good enough to simply turn from sin. The king has to embrace righteousness and the very fact that Daniel says break off your sins the implication is that he has sin and that he needs to break it off but again he doesn't just simply say walk away that the king has to turn and be willing to embrace righteousness the king's called on to make a clean break with sin and iniquity and the proof will be manifest in his willingness to show mercy to the poor. In other words, it isn't just simply a change of mind. It isn't simply a change of heart. It is a change of mind and it is a change of heart that's evidenced by the way that you really live. So what can we learn from Daniel's very brief two-word sermon? The first sentence is a statement of what the king can do. Take my advice, break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. The second sentence is hope. It's the possibility of postponing judgment. It's 
delaying judgment. It's putting the judgment on hold and deferring it. So again, what is repentance? Repentance is made up of three essential elements. It is a change of mind. It is a change of heart. When the Bible speaks of a change of mind, it means change your mind about the circumstance. It means change your mind because you might be thinking, I don't have a sin problem. I don't have a pride problem. I don't have a bitterness problem. I don't have any problem whatsoever. And if you can't change your mind, you won't change your heart. And there won't be a change of life. Those are the three elements. D.L. Moody used to say, man is born with his face turned away from God. When he truly repents, he turned around right toward God. He leaves his old life. Repentance isn't just simply turning around or walking away from sin. It's placing your face in the direction of God's face and Jesus's face and then walking in the direction of righteousness. What might be a way to demonstrate the change of mind and the change of heart and the change of life? In Nebuchadnezzar's instance, it was to show mercy to the poor. In the book of Proverbs, we're told, quote, it is a sin to despise one's neighbors. Blessed are those who help the poor, Proverbs 14.1. Proverbs 14.31. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who help the poor honor him. So the implication is God has blessed Nebuchadnezzar, given him unlimited prosperity and wealth. And what D Daniel is in effect saying is, God has given you an incredible opportunity to make a provision for people who are in trouble. A.W. Tozier had his own pithy definition of repentance. He said, quote, to move across from one sort of person to another is the essence of repentance. The liar becomes truthful. The thief becomes honest, unquote. We might even take that one step further. That means the sexually impure become pure. We might even take it a third step. If that's true, what path does Nebuchadnezzar have to take? He's proud. He is full of pride. He has to become humble. He is wicked. He has to become righteous. God has prospered Nebuchadnezzar in order for that prosperity to manifest itself in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God. He has to pay attention to the plight of the poor. What is your issue? It may not be pride. It might be something else. But whatever that is, you're going to have to ask and answer the question, what does God want me to do with my fill-in-the-blank? Pride calls for humility. Lies calls for truth. Thief calls for getting a job and working. Bitterness 
It calls for forgiveness. It calls for taking a journey away from the bitterness. God gives grace to the humble. The Bible says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we despise humility, we are in effect saying no to grace. And if we say, or if we despise forgiveness, we're saying yes to bitterness. In the Christian life, we lose to gain. We give to obtain. We have to be humble to be exalted. We have to be the least in order to be the greatest. And we have to die to live. Lou Wallace is most famous for writing a book called Ben-Hur. In that story, it's the story of a Jewish nobleman who becomes a slave. And in the original book, Governor Lew Wallace parallels the life of Christ and the remarkable transformation of the main character, Judah Ben-Hur, as he comes to Christ. And woven throughout the book are these great themes of brokenness and tragedy and slavery and betrayal. Wallace says, quote, repentance must be something more than mere remorse or sorrow for sin. It comprehends a change of nature befitting heaven, unquote. It was his way of saying, whatever repentance is, if your mind is changed, if your heart is changed, but your life is not changed, then we have every reason to believe that repentance hasn't taken place. The Bible records a few special cases where the warnings were taken to heart and the judgment was averted. The Lord sent a reluctant Jonah to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. Quote, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would bring to them. And he did not do it, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. This is consistent with Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 through 9. Quote, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it, unquote. In Acts chapter 8, we find the story of Simon Peter and Simon Magus. Magus was a sorcerer. He made a profession of faith. He was even baptized. But his heart never really changed. And that fact is evident because he offers Peter money for the power to lay hands on people to receive supernatural powers. And Peter says, quote, your money perish with you, verse 20. Peter says, you have neither part nor portion. That means fellowship in this matter for your heart isn't right in the sight of God verse 21 repent therefore of this your wickedness pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart will be forgiven you verse 23 for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity these are strong words Bitterness, iniquity, pride. 
They're all poisonous. They don't simply pollute the soul. They paralyze the capacity to recognize truth and embrace truth and love truth. And what is the truth? God is sovereign. Heaven rules. Jesus is on the throne. What is the truth? There is a God in heaven. Jesus is on the throne. What is the truth? He loves you. There's a Jesus who loves you. You know, it's really hard. It's very difficult to hate someone who loves you so much. But that was your story, according to the Bible. Here in his love, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. It's when you were in rebellion. It was when you were in disobedience. It was when you were shaking your fist at God and saying, not for me, not for me. This isn't for me. I'm for me. And think about this. Think about this. It's Christ's love, his perpetual love, his persistent love, his ongoing love and kindness that led you to a place of repentance. Did Daniel ever make the difficult trek from bitterness over the king's many sins against Daniel's people? How did he really feel about the king? Was he really sincere when he said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies? Did he ever really care? I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what he did. That he was able to set aside an enormous grudge and bitterness so that he could be used by God to tell someone who needed to hear the truth. By the way, will the king heed the warning? Nebuchadnezzar, you've been given a dream a supernatural vision, a gracious warning, and you've been given a friend. Yes, a friend. You've been given a friend who's willing to tell you the truth. What will you do? Will you hear the warning? Are you able to hear and take to heart God's supernatural attempt to rescue you from the pride, from the bitterness, from the animosity? What is it? What is it that God's trying to say to you about your life and your future, whatever it is? Let go of it. Let go of the pride. Let go of the bitterness. Make a clean break with sin. Amend your ways and your doings. Jeremiah 7.3 The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Those you will not despise, it says in Psalm 51.17. Let it go. Let it go. 
Make sure that you trust Jesus as your Savior. Have you done that? Have you done that? Have you let it go? I'm going to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who is holding on to the darkness, who's holding on to the bitterness, who's holding on to the anxiety, the animosity, the brokenness that comes from profound betrayal or difficulty or whatever it is, Lord. And Lord, you've placed people in our lives, people who've hurt us, injured us, taken advantage of us. And Lord, I know that for some people, that man, that woman who's listening to my voice, they're the only one who can go to that hospital bed. They're the only one who's going to be able to go to the assisted living center. They're the only one who's going to be able to go to that broken home and speak to that broken heart and tell them that there's a God who loves them and a Jesus who's willing to forgive them. And Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who've been marked by change. That we've turned from our sin. We've changed our mind. We know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. That we've asked Jesus into our heart. And he's changed our heart. And because we changed our mind about sin and we allowed Jesus to change our heart. Our lives have been changed, substantially changed, forever changed. And Lord, again, there really are two kinds of people in the world. Not just those who have hope and who need hope. Those who will hear the warning and heed it. And those who will hear the warning but refuse to heed it. And so, Lord, again, I pray and I thank you and I praise you for hope, that there's hope for the person who's listening. There's hope that they can, they can do it now. They can change their mind now. They can walk away from the sin now. And they can do what's right. In Jesus' name, amen.